welcome to the 146th episode of the 4th and 24 podcast with Patrick Winograd. I am your host, Randy Winograd. In this edition of the podcast, we will talk about NBA playoff action and do our weekly division-by-division look at Major League Baseball. But let's kick things off with that further discussion about the NBA playoffs, starting in the Eastern Conference semifinals with the Bucks celtics series, where the Bucks now lead the Celtics three games to two. This was a contender for a game of the playoffs. It might even top that game one that the Celtics had on the, on the same court against the Nets, honestly. Uh, it's hard to say whether it does or not definitively, but definitely should go in the conversation with it. Um, it was a great game. Uh, you could tell by the score that it was. It was even crazier that the Celtics really had the lead for most of the fourth quarter, and Boston uh, or Boston really only surrendered that lead until I think the last 45 seconds of the game, pretty much, uh, where they, I mean, actually they were up 107 to 105 with 31 seconds left. Um, Jason Tatum made two free throws to do that. Uh, they were up by three before that too, and Drew Holiday made a three after a Marcus Smart uh, turnover. Drew Holiday made a three in transition, and then uh, the Celtics got two free throws. Jason Tatum made them both, but those were the last points they would score. Uh, Giannis made the first free throw with 14 seconds left after getting fouled. He made free throw one. He missed free throw two, but the Celtics failed to secure the rebound, which led to Bobby Portis getting a, a getting a putback layup off of multiple caroms, but eventually he ended up with the rebound and got the shot that put them up by one, and then Drew Holiday blocked Marcus Smart's layup, leading to a rebound from the Bucks uh, and two made free throws by Pat Connaughton, and then at the very, very end of the game, Marcus Smart had his, well, his second turnover, but third third block shot or turnover in the last 30 seconds, where uh, Drew Holiday also stole that that ball too, uh, ending the game as the Bucks tried to, adva- or sorry, as the Celtics tried to advance the ball up the court. Uh, that segment's been, that, that segment of play has been talked about a lot, so I won't go into it anymore, but that is what happened. Uh, I'm going to talk more about the individual stats now and then talk about what I think is going to happen in game six and game seven. Uh, Giannis had 40 points in this game on 16 of 27 shooting, very, very efficient, two of five from three even, and had a big three near the end of this game. I think when they were down six, I think they were down 105-99, and he hit the first three, and the Drew Holiday hit the ne- next one at, right after that. Uh, he also had 11 rebounds. Drew Holiday had 24, 8, and 8, but still, he, he's been struggling to really find a shot. He still only shot 9 of 24 in this game, but 4 of 7 from 3, which was really, really important for the results of this game. Uh, and then you have pretty much good scoring off the bench from Connaughton, who had 13 on 4 of 7, shooting 3 of 5 from 3. And then Bobby Portis, who had 14 points and 15 rebounds with that very, very important putback at the end of the game. Uh, then on the Celtics side of things, uh, Al Horford did not <laughs> come anywhere close to replicating his performance, had eight points in 41 minutes. Uh, Grant Williams failed to score in this game, uh, had himself in foul trouble too. Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, the dynamic duo of the Celtics did play well. Jay- Tatum had 34, uh, and six rebounds and also four assists, uh, while on 12 of 29 shooting, which is somewhat efficient, not, not bad, not good either. Uh, and then, Jalen Brown on 9 of 19 shooting had 26, 8 and 6. And Daniel Tice had 11 off the bench. Marcus Smart had 15 points. But as I said, those costly turnovers and then the block shot at the end of the game. So really offset was what was a pretty good game by Marcus Smart. But uh, other than that, 
look, the impact plays are the ones that people are going to remember you for, and that's those don't reflect very well on Marcus Smart in this game. But they still have an opportunity to turn it around. I do believe they will uh, turn it. Uh, well, I say that even though I didn't pick them to, but th- there's a. Go- I, I'm 50-50 on it. I, I just went with the home team just because when I'm when I'm 50-50, I just pick the home team out of instinct. I feel like that's always the best thing to do. Uh, but I'm really 50-50 on this game. I wouldn't be surprised if the Celtics tied it up and sent it to Game 7 and got it back to their home court, but I also wouldn't be surprised if they went out in six like the and, the, and allowed the Bucks to close it out on their home court. All right, well, let's move to the other Eastern Conference semifinals where the Miami Heat have defeated the Philadelphia 76ers four games to two. Well, in this series, uh, everything happened as it was supposed to. It got to a Game 6 or Game 7, and the 76ers found a way to choke, and James Harden didn't play well. These are... Very long-lasting narratives. Uh, the fr- I got two stats that I'm going to say about Game 6 before I even talk about Game 5, and then I'll talk about them both individually. Fun fact, the Sacramento Kings have been to the conference finals uh, more recently than the 76ers, despite the Sacramento Kings not making the playoffs for 19 years. And second of all, James Harden played 22 minutes and 52 seconds in the second half of Game 6, scoring zero points. Uh, but we'll move on to... That specifically in a second. Let's talk about Game 5, although not much more to talk about in this one because, as I said, I thought Miami would take control of the series, getting it on their home court, and I thought they'd win that game easily. They won 120-85. to They did win that game very, very easily. Um, Duncan Robinson finally got some minutes off the bench, uh, ended up playing 14 minutes, had four points. He was one of three shooting, but his defense wasn't terrible. He proved that he's not a liability uh, for the team in terms of overall production, while his defense is definitely not as good as some of the other guys that the Heat are playing and definitely not as good as the guys that they have in their rotation at all. Uh, but still, overall, I still don't think it justifies just, like, never playing him. It still doesn't really make that much sense to me. But I'm not here to question their rotations. Uh, Got to talk more about the fact that the Heat were able to really just roll over the Sixers in this game and come up with... A, a just a huge game to just knock the Sixers out pretty much. Uh, every sco- every starter scored in double figures. Tyler Hero had 10 off the bench. Uh, Victor Oladipo had 13 off the bench. So seven double-figure scores in this game. Uh, P.J. Tucker had 10. Adebayo had 12. Gabe Vincent had 15. Max Struess had 19. And then Jimmy Butler had 23, 9, and 6 on 9 to 15 shooting. Look, there's a lot of guys you can point to. There, there, there. There's a leading score, but it's not by that much. And the seven double-figure scores are just—it's just too much for the for Philly to handle. They just don't have the overall defense to deal with that kind of output from every player on the court that the Heat had in this game. Something they were missing in the games that they lost. Uh, and then when you go to the Sixers side of things, only three scores and double figures. Uh, Embiid had 17 points, but on seven of 12 shooting. Good shooting numbers, but not that many shots. Uh, Tobias Harris, 5 of 14, he had 12 points. He shouldn't be taking more shots than Joel Embiid when he's not shooting well. Uh, I definitely believe that. Uh, James Harden, 5 of 13 himself with only 14 points. Another guy who shouldn't be taking more shots than Joel Embiid when he's not shooting well. And Tyrese Maxey was 2 of 10 in this game with only 9 points. Uh, It's just not good really anywhere. Uh, So, uh, look, there's not much to talk about with the Sixers offensively in this game. But please give credit to Eric Spolstra. Don't say that it's all... Even though I talked about the choking narrative and whatnot, this is also the fact that they ran into the Miami Heat. I do not necessarily think they would have choked, at least this bad, against just any team. The the Heat are really 
they're a really good matchup against the the 76ers specifically just because they play the swarming defense. They don't let you get into your sets. You can't just naturally run up and down the court and play with better talent than them. You have to run good sets. You have to run good action. They're going to stop anything that's just individual. Uh, and, and they just play good one-on-one defense and really, really good team defense. It's just everybody on the court can guard you. And then you also have P.J. Tucker, who pretty much knows all of James Harden's tendencies. Uh, and he was the guy that the Heat brought in to kind of stop these kinds of guys. Whether it's been effective or not, you can talk about differently, depending on who, who you're talking about the Heat playing against. But when it came to James Harden in the series, P.J. Tucker did a great job. Really, everybody did a great job. So credit to the Heat for that. It especially came through in Game 5. And then in Game 6, Miami won 99-90, to but... There, at some point in this game, it looked a lot worse, and really, the turning point in this game was the fact that, uh, despite it being a 49-48 game at the half, the 76ers only managed 15 points in the third quarter, and the Heat had an 11-point lead going into the fourth quarter. Uh, Joel Embiid was the leading scorer for Philly in this game, even though he shot 7 of 24 from the field. Uh, Tyrese Maxey, a little bit better shooting, 20 points also, but on 9 of 22. Uh, and then you have... Tobias Harris, who had 14 on 6 of 13 shooting. Danny Green only played three minutes in this game. Uh, He had three points. He made one three. But then you have James Harden, who only took nine shots in this whole game. He had nine assists to his credit, though. So, uh, And look, as Joel Embiid was saying, this is not Houston Rockets' James Harden. He has evolved to be more of a playmaker. They asked him to do that on Brooklyn, and it helped KD and Kyrie immensely. But for this team... It just wasn't enough just facilitating. And then, I mean, Shake Milton, you could argue, was their best player who had 15 points on 6 of 8 shooting, at least for tonight. So it was just ugly from the Sixers. And then Jimmy Butler does what he did what he does best, and that's close out a playoff series, 32 points, uh, 8 rebounds, 4 assists for him. P.J. Tucker, 12 points and 9 rebounds on 6 of 9 shooting. And Jimmy Butler just doesn't stop playing 42, 43 minutes, and he just always produces for the Heat, and that really has been was been carrying through them and the reason why they are in they've been in two conference finals in the last 3 seasons despite maybe not de- well I won't even say maybe definitely not having the best player in most of those series when you consider the fact that you had 6 years or, or sorry 6 slots over 3 years of teams that could have been there Giannis missed it one year. Or Giannis and the Bucks missed it one year because the Heat dominated them. That was in the bubble uh, as we know as the Heat went to, went on to the NBA finals. Last year, you obviously had the Bucks there, too. That was the year the Heat didn't make it. But look, there's been a lot of good teams. There have been a lot of talent. And yet, somehow, the Heat have still made it to two out of the three, even with Jimmy Butler being really the main guy who most people would consider not supposed to be a first option on a championship-level team. And yet, here the Heat are. He is proving that he is a first a first option on a championship-level team. While I do not think that this team can win the finals, I think it's honestly possible that they do get there. I've said for a while that I thought the winner of the other series will win this series automatically against the Heat. I don't know that anymore. The Heat have really convinced me that they definitely can get into the conference finals. I don't ever get into the NBA finals again. I don't know if they will, but they definitely can. Okay, well, let's move over to the Western Conference semis, starting with the Warriors-Grizzlies series that the Warriors now lead 3-2. to two. Well... I don't even know if there's much to talk about in this game. You think 120 to 85 is bad. How about the game where the Grizzlies were at up, I think at one point, I know they were up 96 to 56. They won the game in the end, 134 to 95. All you need to know to know the story of this game 
is see that in the first three quarters, the Grizzlies scored 38 points, 39 points, and 42 points. The only time the Warriors have ever given up more in a first half in a playoff series ever was in the 2017 finals with LeBron James. They played a great offensive game, which allowed them, sorry, not the Warriors. The Grizzlies played a great offensive game. Desmond Bain looked like Desmond Bain again. And even though John Morant wasn't there, they were able to handle the pressure at home and stave off elimination for one extra game. Uh, there was no one on Golden State that's really worth talking about. Klay Thompson actually had probably his most efficient night of the series, uh, shot seven for 12 with 19 points, was the leading scorer for Golden State in this game. But the most minutes anybody played in this game was Klay Thompson at 25 and Steph Curry at 25, and then Kuminga and Damian Lee played 24 minutes. So overall, just you could tell by just looking at minutes. You don't even need to look at the score. If you see how many minutes these guys played, you said you could see that either there was a massive collision between Steph Curry, Klay Thompson, and Jordan Poole, and Draymond Green for that matter, that caused them all to get injured. Or they were just getting blown out, and that was the truth. Uh, or maybe that they were killing another team. But in this case, it was the Warriors getting blown out. Uh, even though they still shot 45% total, that that was kind of after everything had unfolded. And also, it's easy to do that when you give away 22 possessions to turnovers. Meanwhile, Memphis shot 47% from the field, 44% from three, and had 19 additional shot attempts over the Golden State Warriors. Uh, in comparison, they only had nine turnovers to Golden State's 22. So that's something very, very important about this game. Uh, but it really just was from the start. Memphis just jumped out with a different energy. and you could, it, I, I don't want to say Golden State gave up this game immediately, but I haven't seen that team play that bad probably since maybe a game where Steph Curry was resting while Klay Thompson was out injured and Draymond Green was out injured. I don't think I've seen this team play this badly, regular season or postseason, really in a long, long time. So it's just not something you expect to see from the Warriors. And by the way, hate to say it, I still think they're going to win the series in six. I, I really do think that. I, I said before that I don't care what happens in game five, and I'm going to stick to that. I really don't care what happens in game five, although I will say the, the more games without Steve Kerr that they keep playing, it does get a little worrying that... It, that with him not there, they don't have the same sets running and everything like that. As we know, uh, Mike Brown was running the defense the whole year, and he he even admitted himself that he needed uh, to kind of catch up with the offensive stuff again, uh, moving into that head coaching role again uh, with Steve Kerr out with COVID. But I still think the Warriors can win. I don't even think they need a coach, frankly. <laughs> uh, I agree. Let's move to the final conference semifinal, Suns and Mavs which are now tied at three games apiece, heading to a Game 7. This probably is very surprising that this might end up being the closest series. It's possible that this is the only series that goes to seven games. You have the three seed in both conferences with an opportunity to seal the series away in the sixth game at home. Uh, and then in this series, you have Game 7 guaranteed because we already know what's happening because the series is tied, as you said. The Suns won Game 5, 110-80. to 80 domination from them, uh, and again, as we now know since it's tied, no road team has won a game this series. I do think that's going to continue, but it's not even like these games have been close. These games have been ugly. The only games that were close were really, I think game four was probably the, the tiniest margin of defeat by a losing team in the series, and that was the Suns just barely staying in it on the road, so it's clear that it's really the Suns and not uh, it's really the Suns who are the better team because every single time Dallas goes to Phoenix, 
they get obliterated. They lost 110 to 80 in this game. Uh, in the first game of the series, yeah, the Suns only won by seven, but they were winning by more at some point. And also they gave up 121 points. And then the Suns also won game two, 129 to 109. The scores in Dallas have not been as lopsided until game six, which I'll get to. But let's talk more about game five uh, in depth. Luka had 28. Jalen Brunson had 21. The rest of the team, pretty much non-existent. Uh, they only had 31 points combined from the rest of the team. That is just not a winning formula. You can't have two guys and then everybody else score 31. Uh, it's just not going to happen. Uh, meanwhile, for Phoenix, Devin Booker had 28 points on 11 of 20 shooting. DeAndre Ayton had 20 points on 9 of 13 shooting. Uh, Mikhail Bridges had 14 on 6 of 13. Chris Paul did not really look himself offensively in terms of shooting, but still had 10 assists, although he only had 7 points on 3 of 8 shooting. And then Cam Johnson had 14 off the bench. Really, just a typical Suns game. Uh, even got some important contributions from Bismack Biombo. Uh, although he ended up going to fight Marquise Chris at the end of the game too, but uh, very weird game. Uh, but still, Phoenix really just dominated this game. There's really nothing more to it other than the fact that, uh, again, Dallas, 25% from three. They live by the three. They die by the three. Uh, and even though the Suns shot 38% from three, they still absolutely dominated this game. It, it just wasn't, it just wasn't really that, it wasn't really that close of a game. And, uh, there's not much more to talk about it uh, other than maybe the turnover battle where Phoenix only had 12 uh, compared to Dallas's 16. As I said, the turnover, the, the team with less turnovers has won every game in the series. That continues to be a theme. Uh, and overall, that's who might end up winning the series is whoever has uh, the better, the, whoever w gets the better of the other team in the turnover battle. But let's move on to game six where the Mavericks won 113-86, as I said, putting up that lopsided number. Uh, this was just a really good game by the Mavericks. DeAndre Ayton had 21 points on 10 of 16 shooting. Booker had 19, but on 6 of 17. Chris Paul had 13 points, but really took him a while to get involved in the game. He had 7 points until late in the third quarter, and the Suns were already down by 20 when he scored those extra points. Uh, and then you have Dallas, who on the other side of things, uh, Luka Doncic had 33. Reggie Bullock had 19 uh, and Jalen Brunson had 18, and then you also had Spencer Dinwiddie, who had 15 points off the bench on 5 of 7 from 3. Maxi Kleba had 9 points on 3 of 5 from 3, so overall, balanced contributions, uh, very good production off the bench. Really, that's it. I mean, it was pretty simple, other than the fact that uh, that turnover battle again, if you want to go into it again, it really has been the story of the series. Dallas had 6, and Phoenix had 22. And then when you look at the three-pointers, Phoenix, 6 of 18, so not even getting up that many attempts, but also not shooting a good percentage compared to Dallas, 16 of 39. So Dallas plus 30 from the three-point line and shot a better percentage overall and had more shot attempts because they had less turnovers. That's how you lead. That's what leads to a 113-86 scoreline. That, that is exactly how that happens. Uh, and we'll have to see what happens in Game 7 in Phoenix. I still have my money on the Suns. Okay, well, that wraps up our look at NBA action for this podcast. Let's now turn our attention to our weekly look at Major League Baseball, starting, as always, in the American League East. The New York Yankees lead the AL East and also all of baseball with a 23-8 record. Uh, a 742 winning percentage sounds like something out of a video game, but they are really, they've really just played that well all season. They have been playing just really, really good. Uh, I wouldn't say they're running away with this division still, but look, their sweep of the Blue Jays is convincing. Uh, four wins in a row for the Yankees, 8-2 in their last 10. 
Compared to the Rays, who are 19-13, and 13, four and a half games back, uh, they've won their last one, but 7-13 and 13 in their last 10, including being no-hit by rookie Reed Detmers, which I'll talk more about when we get to the Angels, uh, but they were no-hit against the Angels, and then you also have the Blue Jays right behind the Yankees, who, as I talked about, uh, lost that series to the Yankees, actually got swept in that series. 17-15 and 15 now on the season, six and a half games back. Uh, they're still good at home, but continue to struggle on the road. And then you have, uh, and by the way, three and seven in their last 10, along with that uh, lose it, four-game losing streak. Then you have the Orioles, who are in fourth in this division at 14-18 and 18 after a decent week. Uh, they're six and four in their last 10, a better record than the Blue Jays in their last 10. And nine and a half games back of the Yankees, while the Red Sox sit in the bottom of this division, 11 and 20, 12 games back of the New York Yankees, the third worst winning percentage in all of the American League, only better than the Detroit Tigers and the Kansas City Royals, which is not good at all for the Red Sox. I talked about digging themselves in too deep of a hole uh, when you talk about just the end of the season standings, they might have already dug themselves into a ditch so big that they won't be able to get out of it. It is a very, 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 very big hole that they've dug themselves into. Uh, and also, they are not looking like they're really playing that much better. Still 2-8 and eight in their last 10. So if anything, it's gotten worse than it already was before. Uh, but just overall, it's just, it's just been bad this year from the Red Sox. You can talk about it from any perspective. Blown leads getting walked off, losing losing in the 10th inning to the White Sox, uh, losing in the 10th inning to other teams, getting walked off by the Braves. I mean, there, there are just so many different things that have gone wrong for the Red Sox. And it's really just the fact that they just have not played a good a good year so far. Um, they're just not playing well as a team. There are many issues you can point to. And uh, it's just not looking like they're the quality of a team that we originally thought they were going to be. Um, and... That's all I have to say about it for the Red Sox. I talked about the Yankees already, so I'll look at the middle a little bit more. The Blue Jays are just being the Blue Jays. It, it, simply put, that's just what they're doing. They're, the Blue Jays are, I mean, sorry, the Rays are just being the Rays. There's there's nothing more to it. 19 and 13 is kind of exactly where you'd think they'd be. They're never really in best record conversations, but they're normally always hovering on a pace for 90, 95-ish wins. I don't know if they're necessarily there yet in terms of the pace. I, I'm not doing the math. Uh, I think they're probably around 90-ish, but still, they, they just always do this. There's really not much to talk about with the Rays. The Blue Jays, however, I could say, definitely been underachieving, especially recently. Just some worrying things from them so far, but I, I think they can get healthier and start playing better. Uh, they need some of their pitching to step up, some of their big names especially. Hyunjin Ryu has not been great this year. Uh, especially you say Kikuchi had a pretty bad year to start and has, you know, kind of, he's gotten a little bit better over the course of the season, but still not having a great year by his standards that he set last year in Seattle. Uh, but I guess that's all I have to say about the AL East. Okay, well then let's move to the AL Central. The Twins still in the lead in the AL East at 18 Central. and 4, sorry, in the AL Central, yeah, you're right, uh, at 18 and 14, despite a three-game losing streak, 5-5 five and five in their last 10 the second and third place teams are both seven and three in their last ten. They're both fifteen and fifteen. Uh, that would be the Cleveland Guardians and the Chicago White Sox, who are two games back. Although both of those teams losing their last game, uh, the White Sox a giving up a lot of runs today to the Yankees, uh, or sorry, yesterday to the Yankees, and then you have the Guardians. I don't know what they actually did in their last game, to be quite honest, but 
Both teams losing their last game. Then you have the Royals, 3-7 and seven in their last 10, 10 and 19 overall, six and a half games back. And then the Detroit Tigers, the most disappointing team in the season by far. And don't say the Reds because we already knew they were going to be bad. Uh, maybe not this bad, but well, pretty out. bad. Uh, and then the Tigers, nine games back, as I as I said, very disappointing. Nine and 23, worst record in the AL. Barely better than the Reds at this point in the season. They have lost three in a row. They are one and nine in their last 10. They had a 27 or 28 game, or sorry, inning scoreless streak. A 28 game scoreless streak would be. That would be something else. That would be really, really bad. They wouldn't just be the biggest disappointment. They'd be the worst team of all time if that happened. Uh, but still, terrible from the season. Terrible this season so far from the Tigers. The White Sox finally turned it back around, even though they haven't really gotten anybody back from injury. Uh, it's really just been AJ Pollock who got back and has started to play better after he was both injured and then wasn't playing so well. But the top five of their lineup is still really only the healthy guys. They still don't have Eloy Jimenez playing on a consistent basis. Uh, Luis Robert, Tim Anderson, Jose Abreu, Yasmani Grandal, and A.J. Pollock are the guys who have been there uh, pretty much most of the season. But, you know, Anderson had a suspension. Pollock was out for a week or two at some point. So it's just been really disjointed from the White Sox. But it's not surprising to see them bounce back. And I still have faith that they're going to win this division. And look, they're one game back of Minnesota on May 12th. I definitely have faith that in the next 132 games, they can make up that one game in the loss column. Uh, and look, they're going to have a good chance by the end of the year. They're going to get healthier, uh, especially Liam Hendricks being better throughout the last five or six uh, sta- saves and appearances that he's had has been a very good sign for them. Uh, and then in the Guardi- with the Guardians, they're just hitting very well. 145 runs scored. Uh, they're third in the AL uh, third only behind the Angels and the Yankees, so very good offense so far uh, from Cleveland, although pitching could be a little bit better, but still overall pretty good team uh, so far this year, and they deserve to be at 500. I don't think they deserve to be much better. Probably don't deserve to be worse, so I think they're right about where they should be. I don't think they've had one of those crazy seasons like the Mariners last year with the terrible run differential, but a great record. They're not like that at all. They're plus 10 in run differential. They're 15 and 15 so far through 30 games. You could say they're slightly unlikely, but overall, they're pretty much right where they're supposed to be. And then when it comes to the Tigers, I don't know how to discuss their issues. They just have a lot of them. Uh, and then the Royals, got to admit, haven't watched much of them. Never pinged them as a playoff team. They're not disappointing. They're exactly where they're supposed to be. They're young outside of Salvador Perez and Carlos Santana. They're really not, and Zach Granke. They're really not trying to build to win this year. Uh, so it's not surprising that they're not winning this year. Okay, well, let's uh, move over to the AL West. In the AL West, the Houston Astros lead the division on a 10-game winning streak. Despite all the talk of everything the Angels are doing, the Astros are 21-11. At some point, we're 11-11 this season. See what I'm talking about with the White Sox going from 500 to winning the division? Yeah, it can definitely happen. Uh, <laughs> uh, the Astros only took 10 games to turn that around. 21-11, second-best record in the AL, so very successful season so far for them. Well, after in the last 10 games at least. I believe those 10 games have to all be since that Blue Jays series that they lost because I remember predicting the Blue Jays to win that series. And, uh, well, if you look at the two records, it doesn't make any sense that they uh, that they were losing any games beyond that. That feels like, and I know I picked it two weeks in a row, so uh, they've been playing very well since that series. They literally have not lost a game. Uh, they are unbeatable since that second Blue Jays series. Uh, And then overall, you also have the fact that you have the Angels in second at 21 and 12. They have played very, very well this season. 
This team does feel different. It doesn't feel like, well, I will say, it kind of does feel like they might be an injury or two away from the season being ruined, but it also feels a lot different than past years. Uh, that is something that I, I, I got to say, I, I feel really good about with the Angels. They should make the wild card, especially with how bad the Red Sox have been and how bad the Tigers have been. There have been a lot of doors opened up, and they look like they're the team that's going to jump through the door and take advantage of that opportunity that they've been given by these other teams. I'm going to go ahead and say that the Angels make the playoffs. Mark it down May 12th. They're going to make the playoffs. Uh, they're going to be second in this division, but they are still going to make the playoffs. And if they're first in the division, that works too. Uh, but look, they've been playing very well. As I said, Reed Detmers had the no-hitter. Uh, the game before that, they also won. I think they were down to their last strike and ended up scoring four runs to walk it off. So th they've had a lot of magical finishes this year. And then, by the way, they did lose their next game after the no-hitter to the same team, the Rays, uh, on in extra innings. So it's not like... They've had this crazy magical season, but they've still had a very good season so far. Uh, way above the Angels' expectations. Well, no, not way above the expectations. Way above their past performances, uh, but definitely what we expect from a team that has this stacked of a roster year in, year out, with two top five MVP candidates, uh, yet not really any production, but this year finally looking like it's starting to turn around. And the reason why, gotta say it, it's pitching. They have pitching this year. We see a no-hitter happen. They have Noah Syndergaard, who still is not maybe an ace anymore in his life, but is still playing very well uh, or pitching very well. And then you obviously, you have Patrick Sandoval. Uh, they have good pitching this year, and that's really the driving factor for them, especially their bullpen, uh, one of the best closers in baseball, and also adding Ryan Tapera, one of the best setup men in baseball in after last season. Uh, and then in third, you have the Mariners, who are 14 and 18, seven games back. Uh, of the Astros, and then six and a half back of the Angels. So two teams to make up ground over. Two and eight in their last 10. They have been another very disappointing team this year, adding to their very lucky but very good roster last year, now getting worse after all of that, uh, which is surprising. And then right behind them, you have the Rangers, who are 13 and 17. Actually, technically not behind them. Same same record, uh, but different, different amount of games played, both seven games back. Rangers are seven and three in their last 10. They have actually been playing well recently, uh, I have to say my criticisms of this team are still there because it really does feel like this is their peak is staying around maybe a 430 win percentage. You can't just have Corey Seager and Marcus Simeon and a bunch of prospects and expect to be very good, especially when I think Josh Jung is one of their top prospects who he also has an injury and he hasn't been playing either. Uh, so you don't have your top prospects playing the ones that are playing most of them good, some of them not so much. And then you also just pretty much only have a middle infield as your real star players. I don't know if that's going to be enough uh, to really be in playoff contention, but the, I think the long contracts are really setting them up for two, three years from now, where then you'll see that when Seager still has seven years left on his deal and Simeon still has four or five on his, that's when you're going to start to be like, okay, these were good signings. It makes sense that they got these players. But for right now, it still seems a little bit off. But I will say the Rangers do look like they're starting to become more of a team, have their own identity. Uh, they're going to need to score a lot of runs in that in that stadium, though, although it's a pretty fun stadium to watch baseball in when you, looked at, when you look back at the World Series in 2020. Definitely need the juice balls to hit home runs there, though. Uh, so this year not benefiting the home run hitters in Texas very well. And then finally, at the bottom of the division, you have the Oakland A's, who are probably just the most uninteresting team to talk about, although they're 14-19. and 19. They're doing better than expected. They've won three in a row, largely due, in fact, to the 
fact that they're playing the Tigers. Uh, they're four and six in their last ten, but I mean, it's not much to talk about. They're a good. They're they're a decent team. They're not great. They're not. They're not bad. Uh, they're not better than the Rangers. Even they're not better than the Mariners, which is not going to land you anywhere near the playoff race. Uh, when you look at it overall, they actually have probably some of the worst, one of the worst records in the AL. But overall, the the AL just hasn't been that bad this year. So it's hard to say uh, how bad they actually are. I think they're they're bad, but they're not terrible. So they deserve some credit for not being as bad as I thought they would be, but also don't deserve credit because they intentionally got worse in the offseason. So you never get respect from me for doing that. All right, that wraps up our look at the American League. Let's move over to the National League and start in the East. In the East, the New York Mets lead the division at 22-11. and 11. Uh, Six and four in their last ten. They've somewhat cooled off, I guess you could say, but still playing a very, very good series, and they've been a very good team all year long, definitely deserving of the division lead, especially when you look at some of the disappointing teams in the league, in their division, sorry, as I should say, like the Philadelphia Phillies, who after their win against the Dodgers last night, move ahead of the Atlanta Braves and the Miami and the Miami Marlins, uh, tied with the Braves technically, at 15-17 and 17 in second place in the division, six and a half games back. Uh, they've won two in a row, including that win against the Dodgers, as I said, but they're still four and six in their last ten. Uh, as we know, they also blew that six-run lead to the Mets. Just bad look. Actually, that might have been earlier this week now that I think about it. It feels like it was a long time ago, but maybe it wasn't. Uh, and then you have the Braves right behind them. Well, Technically tied with them, not technically, actually tied with them at 15 and 17, six and a half games back of the Mets. Also, these teams are both nine and nine at home and six and eight on the road. Uh, the Braves with the worst run differential of the two, but five and five in their last 10, they've started to stabilize a little bit, uh, but still not playing like the champions that we know them to be from last year, obviously. Then you have the Miami Marlins, who are 14 and 17, seven games back, but they are two and eight in their last 10. They went on a massive losing streak after the winning streak they had. Like I had been mentioning, they've pretty much always been, they've been streaky pretty much the whole year. Uh, so they just have not found a way to have consistent play throughout the year. And that's just, I mean, it's just too bad for them. You can't really do much about it. They they maybe aren't, well, not maybe aren't. They aren't as talented as the other teams in this division, especially those top three. But they need to find some consistency regardless to at least try to make a run at the playoffs. Uh, and it doesn't look like they're capable of doing that right now with how inconsistent they've been. Uh, and then you have the Washington Nationals who are 11 and 22, 11 games back. They're just not a good team. I mean, we know that they're not really focusing too much on this season. Uh, some of their prospects have looked okay. Some of them not so much, similar to a lot of other teams. Uh, mainly, I think that's the exact answer I gave about the Rangers. Uh, but four and six in their last ten, not terrible. But also they're four and thirteen at home, which is interesting. Might have something to do with the fact that their team's not that interesting, so their fans don't even come to see them anymore. Uh, but the Nationals not having a great year. Whole division way under expectation so far. All right, let's move over to the Central Division, where the Brewers lead at twenty and twelve, uh, two and a half games out of the Cardinals, who are two and five. Both teams lost their last game, five and five in their last ten. Uh, the Cardinals are pretty much even home and away. They're eight and seven at home, nine and seven away. Brewers are ten and four at home, so really good home record for them. Ten and eight on the road, uh, but very similar run differential. Plus twenty nine for the for the Brewers, plus thirty for the Cardinals. Cardinals are doing it with better run prevention. Uh, Brewers doing it with better run scoring, which is actually really interesting because 
When you think about the Brewers, you think about their pitching. When you think about the Cardinals, I think you think about their lineup when you're talking about Paul Goldschmidt and Nolan Arenado. You got Harrison Bader, uh, all, all those guys. There's a lot of good players on that team. You could even throw in Albert Pujols' name if you want to. Obviously, there's Dylan Carlson, there's Tyler O'Neill, there's Tommy Edmond. They have a lot of offensive production, and yet somehow... Cardinals getting outscored so far this year by the Brewers, but also pitching better by far than the Brewers with 24 less runs allowed on the year. Uh, but both teams playing well. Cardinals maybe could play a little bit better, but uh, last year they were pretty much on this pace until their ridiculous 17 or 18 game winning streak at the end of the season. Uh, but again, they are playing well enough that they should be in, in contention for a playoff spot. Definitely should make the playoffs. Then you have the Pittsburgh Pirates at 13 and 18 who, despite winning a series against the Dodgers for, I think, the first time since 2018, uh, are still 4-6 in their last 10 and still under 500, six and a half games back in the division lead. You have the Cubs, who just got swept by the Dodgers. Uh, they stole the last game in the series against the Padres, but are 3-7 in their last 10, 11-19 on season, eight games back. Much better run differential than the Pirates, minus 13, which is the same as teams above 500 like the Diamondbacks and uh, even... Oh, eight runs actually better than the White Sox. It's the same run differential as the Blue Jays. So overall, can't be that disappointed. They're actually staying a lot more competitive than it would seem at first glance, especially at the record. Uh, but still, who cares about run differential when you're not getting wins? Uh, and then finally, speaking of you're not getting wins, the Reds, 8-24 and on the season, 12 games back. But actually, in the opposite way of not getting wins, they've won two in a row. And they're five and five in their last ten. Break up the Reds after their three and twenty-one start to the season. Uh, but look, the, and I think it actually was worse than that at some point. I don't even. I don't even. I think it was a lot worse than three and twenty-one. Uh, but I think it was actually got to three and twenty-three. I want to say. I think they might have won five of six, if that's even possible. Uh, that doesn't seem possible. So I'm going to go ahead and say that I'm wrong, even without checking it. But uh, the Reds have actually been playing. Hate to say it, they've been playing pretty well recently. The last week or so. Uh, including beating the Brewers despite Christian Yelich's third career cycle against the Reds, who and he becomes the fifth person ever. I should have said this earlier when I was talking about the Brewers, but this is a team where you talk about their misfortunes, not things they do well because they don't do many things well. Uh, it was Christian Yelich's third cycle of his career. I think there are five other players, or he is the fifth player to have three cycles, all of them against one team, the Reds. Uh, that is something that no one else has ever done. But congratulations to Christian Yelich. Okay. Well, let's finally move on to the National League West. Where the Dodgers lead at 20-10, and 7-3 uh, in their last 10, but lost the last game of the of the Pirates series and lost the first game of their Philly series. So not doing so well against Pennsylvania teams this year. Lost 2-3 <laughs> to the Pirates, um, right? Yeah, and 2-3 of three overall the Pirates. They're 1-2 and two against the Pirates. They're 1-2 and two against the Diamondbacks. They're 1-2 and two against the Rockies. And they're 17-3 and against the rest of baseball, which makes absolutely no sense. But the Dodgers are going to win games no matter what. That is something that we do know. Uh, but it's interesting to see where the wins are coming from. Yeah, that's because they played the Red Sox once. But also thrown in there, they, they played the Braves. Uh, well, I guess actually 17-4 and now, now that I think about it. Forgot to add that Phillies game in there. Uh, but they played the Braves. They played the Phillies, even though they're 0-1 against the Phillies so far. Uh, they played a series, as I said, against the Braves. They played the Giants for two games. They played the Padres for three games. So it's not entirely like they've been playing just terrible teams. Uh, and as I said, I mentioned the worst teams in the league other than the Reds. So they had to have been playing somebody. <laughs> but uh, overall, pretty good by the Dodgers so far. 20-10 uh, and 10 is definitely a good record, although 
Maybe you could say it's surprising that they're not better than the Mets, but maybe you could also say that they actually have the same exact winning percentage. Then you go to second place, the Padres, definitely more surprising than the Dodgers' good start to the season. 20-12, one game back despite not having Fernando Tatis. However, the Dodgers with a plus-76 run differential, uh, one of the top scoring teams in baseball and also by far the top pitching team in baseball, the only team under 97 runs given up this season, still at 80 runs given up, despite the fact that they allowed nine runs last night, still that low on the in terms of runs given up, and still that high in run differential with plus 76. But um, look, Padres only plus eight in run differential indicates they might be going down soon, but they've had some clutch games. They've had some clutch performances, some walk-offs. They also got walked off at the f- first game of the season by the Diamondbacks, so they've had some really close games so far, uh, six and four in their last 10. But, you know, they still have reinforcements coming. And maybe even signing Robinson Cano is what we've heard. So that might be another thing that might, another guy that might come to their roster uh, while Fernando Tatis is out. And then you have San Francisco Giants at 19 and 12, one and a half games back of the Dodgers, only a half game back of the Padres. They've won five in a row. They're five and five in their last 10, which means that they had a five game losing streak before that, including that sweep against the Dodgers, but are getting swept by the Dodgers. However, they really didn't have anybody on their roster at that point. They were really, really injured. Uh, they got Jock Peterson back from injury. They got Mike Yastrzemski back from injury. Uh, they got Brandon Belt back, I think, for a game or two, I'm pretty sure, recently. Uh, they've really gotten their guys back, and now they're starting to play a lot better uh, when they're not throwing out a pretty bad lineup every night. Uh, and that's really what's happened with them. They're still, they've still been a great pitching team all year long, and the run differential is still good, and it reflects that. Uh, and then you have the Diamondbacks and the Rockies. 17-15 for the Diamondbacks, 16-15 for the Rockies. Four and four and a half games back. The Diamondbacks were seven and three in their last ten. Uh, the Rockies losing four in a row, four and six in their last ten. So, as we know, the Rockies had a very hard, ha, bleh, a very very uh, fast start to the year, but have had a hard fall off since, and they're uh, they're not playing so well as of recently. Uh, I would say you could make a pun and say that they've hit rock bottom, but I don't think they're quite there yet because uh, they're still above five hundred. This team is not going to finish above five hundred. Uh, and then you have the Diamondbacks, who also aren't going to finish above f- top 500. But, hey, they have some good young pieces. They're really playing well with their prospects. They got more guys to bring up. They brought up Alec Thomas recently. I think it was their sixth-ranked prospect in their organization. Uh, and, you know, they're going to keep doing that all season. And then maybe in a few years, they got Cattell Marte still there. Uh, maybe in the final year of Madison Bumgarner's career, he leads them out of the bottom of the division and into playoff contention. But that's a few years away. We're talking about now. Uh, And for now, these teams, I don't think, can catch up to the Dodgers, the Padres, or the Giants, despite only being four and four and a half games back. Okay, well, that wraps up our look at Major League Baseball for the week. It also wraps up this edition of the 4th and 24 podcast. Please join us for our next podcast, which will be on Monday, May 16th, where we will see the accuracy of Patrick's weekend predictions and look at more NBA playoff action, probably previewing the conference finals at that point in time. In the meantime, please be sure to check out Patrick's additional content, including his weekend predictions that were posted on Thursday, his Major League Baseball power rankings that were posted on Tuesday, and his NBA power rankings that were posted on Wednesday. All that content can be found on our website, 4thand24.com. That's the number 4, T-H-A-N-D, the number 24.com. Thank you for listening.